Aloha Church, peace be with you all. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and this evening we're going to begin in verse 32, and we're going to continue down through verse 43. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32, to others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, in such great detail, you have left us the story of the crucifixion and the death of your son. And Father, as we look at your word, we pray that your spirit would be at work in all of us today, opening up our spiritual eyes and ears to hear and see the glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name and for your glory. Amen. You may be seated, church. Kids, uh, the oldest class, your teachers are in the back waiting to take you to your class, so you are dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us. Uh, This is our second week looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, We are coming to the end of our study through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And last Sunday, we read that just like like the criminal, just like a criminal, Jesus was paraded through the busy streets of Jerusalem. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. He could not continue carrying the cross for some reason. And so a man named Simon of Cyrene was seized to carry the cross for Jesus. And in our text today, we see that it wasn't just Jesus who was being led to his death With him are two criminals, uh, two thieves who will be crucified next to him. Uh, We have a lot of details here in our text, and so 
Uh, we're not going to be able to cover all uh, of, of there's, there's a lot of interesting things going on here that Luke records, but we'll cover as much as we can. We read the first thing is that they brought Jesus and these two thieves to the place called the skull. This is where they would be crucified. This place that is called the skull is also famously known by two other words. Um, you might have heard the term Golgotha or Calvary. Calvary is a Latin, Latin translation of the skull. Um, some translations just transfer the Latin word right over into the English language. Uh, ESV here translates it as the skull. And Golgotha is the Aramaic word for the skull. So when you hear Calvary, Golgotha, the skull, these are all the same word. They mean, they mean the same thing. It's just three different languages. When we were in Israel earlier this year, we visited a place where Jesus was possibly crucified. Um, no one knows for a fact, but the reason why some assume, many assume that this is the place is because the cliffside, when you look at it, you see um, a skull. You can see the shape of a human skull, and this led many to believe that, okay, this is outside of the city of Jerusalem. This is by a busy street. Maybe, maybe this is where Jesus was crucified. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We, we don't know. But possibly the reason why this place is called the skull is because um, it looks like, the geography looks like one. And verse 33 tells us, When they got to the place, there they crucified Jesus and the two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. When we open up all the Gospels, the four Gospels, and we look at everything that Jesus said while he was hanging on the cross, we find seven sayings, seven famous statements that Jesus has made, and three of them are here in the Gospel of Luke. We don't know the exact order in which Jesus said these statements, but most believe that the first statement that Jesus said is this prayer that we find in verse 34. We read, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just think about this. Over the past few weeks, we've seen how much injustice and suffering Jesus has endured. It began with the betrayal of his close friend, Judas, the arrest in the garden, the unjust trial in the Sanhedrin that ended with the death sentence, then a trial before Pilate where he declared Jesus to be not guilty three times. Pilate still gives in to the cries of the mob and gives Jesus over to them to be crucified. And throughout all of that time, as Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, the Pilate, Herod, the soldiers, the guards, throughout the entire time, he is being mocked, he is being beat, he's being mistreated by everyone he encounters. And now as he is crucified, 
his body flogged and torn up, Jesus, unrecognizable, lifted up, hanging on the cross, naked in a very public place outside the city walls, experiencing unimaginable pain, the first words out of Jesus' mouth is a prayer. And it's not a prayer for himself. He's not praying, Lord, give me strength to endure. It's not a prayer for his friends, his disciples who ran off. It's a prayer for his enemies. And in this prayer, Jesus is not cursing them. He's not calling down the vengeance and the fire of God to come down on his enemies. No, he is asking the Father to be merciful to the people who are continuing to cause much suffering and humiliation to Jesus. That's what he's praying for. These are Jesus' first words. And these aren't just pretty and pious words that Jesus has to say. You know, he's Jesus. He has to say kind things. Often, uh, when our kids uh, get into little fights with each other, and we try to make peace, we call one to repent, the other to forgive. Sometimes when they say those words, when they ask for forgiveness, or when they forgive, sometimes their words do not match the attitudes of their heart. Their words do not match their body language. That is not what Jesus is doing here. This was really how Jesus felt. Jesus is absolutely and completely compassionate and forgiving towards his enemies. These are not just words. Christ is truly forgiving them. Look at the maturity and the clarity that Jesus has. Just think about the times we are hurt, and none of us have been hurt in such a way that Jesus has been. Just think about all the emotions that come in. Yet Christ is not ruled or controlled here by bitterness. He has no resentment. Jesus is not sorry for himself. He has zero self-pity. He forgives them. And he prays for their forgiveness. Some modern psychologists looking at what Jesus is doing might say that Jesus is stuffing. He is suppressing. He is avoiding negative feelings. And someday it will all come out and it will hurt him. Of course, that's not what's happening. It's the beauty of spirit-empowered forgiveness. There are no negative feelings left to suppress. Jesus is able to forgive in real time. He doesn't even need a few days like we do. He doesn't need a month to think about it, to process it, to justify if and when he needs to forgive. Jesus is able to forgive right there and then as they are continuing to mock him and torture him. As they pile up their offenses against Jesus sky high, he is not counting any of the wrongs done against him. 
The worst sin and injustice committed against anyone was against Christ, and he does not hold their sin against them. On the contrary, he forgives them and he prays that the Father would forgive them. In other words, Father, I don't hold anything against them. You also have mercy on them. Just think for a moment. How are you doing with forgiveness? We're, as, as humans, it is impossible for us to avoid offenses, offending or being offended by one another. It's just impossible. How are you doing with forgiveness? And I know that none of us are like Jesus, but Jesus did teach us to do the very thing that he is modeling here for us on the cross. In Luke 6, we find the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus preaches it at the beginning of his ministry, and in it he commands us to do the very same thing he is doing here. We read uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And now at the end of his life, isn't Jesus doing exactly that? Praying for those who abuse him. We have many enemies today. There are those who desire evil for the church, those who do much harm to the people of God. The culture war is very much real. And as we continue to stand on and fight for truth, if we do not love and bless and pray for our enemies, we have already lost. Because as we stand unwavering in the truth, which we must do, if our heart is not filled with blessing and prayer towards our enemies, it will be filled with the contrary. It will be filled with the spirit of bitterness and oftentimes the same hatred that our enemies are filled with. And there is absolutely no room for hatred, for resentment, or unforgiveness in the kingdom of God. If we're filled with this, if we're filled with these emotions, if we are not blessing and praying for our enemies as we continue to oppose them, we already lost. And as you do forgive, do you pray to the Father that he would also forgive them? Sometimes I catch myself praying for those who, uh, who are my enemies, but I do hope that God someday will have vengeance on them. Christ isn't doing that. He prays that the Father himself would forgive them and have mercy on them. And so as Jesus prayed for his enemies, very likely this prayer was heard by those close to the cross, 
Yet we see that the mocking does not stop. They do not relent. Verse 35 through 39, we have three parties here described to us by Luke who are continuing to mock Jesus. We have the rulers, the scoffers, and the criminals. Verse 35, the rulers scoffed at him. This would be the Jewish religious leaders. They say, they said to Jesus, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36, we see the soldiers are mocking him. They say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, we see one of the criminals, one of the thieves. We read that he railed at Jesus, also saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself, and of course they add, and us. They want to be saved too. And in the Gospel of Mark 15.29, we read that it wasn't just these three that were insulting Jesus. We read that there were many who were passing by. This was, Rome would crucify criminals on a very busy street, besides a very busy street to make an example of, of, of the criminals. And we read that those who were passing by, they would see Jesus and they would hurdle accusations at him and say, save yourself and come down from the cross. And we see that across the board, the common theme here, the common request, the common thing that they tell Jesus is, if you are Christ, save yourself. This is what they're all telling Jesus. Save yourself. Of course, the fame, the fame of Jesus spread to all the regions in that area. Everyone has heard about Jesus. Everyone's heard about all the amazing things that Christ has done. The religious leaders did. The soldiers did. Even these thieves would have heard about Jesus, they all knew who Jesus was and all of the amazing things that he has done. And so we read, as they mocked Jesus, they said he saved others and he cannot save himself. What they have in mind is the fact that they know that Jesus saved others. Jesus saved others from blindness. Jesus raised from the dead. He gave uh, the crippled the ability to walk. Jesus saved others. And so they dared him to come off the cross. And their conclusion was that he cannot. They said he cannot save himself. And their conclusion is that therefore he is not the Messiah. The fact that Jesus remained on the cross became proof to them that he is not the Son of God. But could he? Could Jesus come off the cross? They think, looking at Jesus, they think that he is a helpless victim. 
They think that he is at the mercy of their hands. They think if Christ was given a chance, if he was given the opportunity, he would come off the cross, but he just can't. But in fact, something greater is going on here. There's another reason why Jesus is not coming off the cross. Jesus is on a mission. They do not realize that Christ is willingly laying down his life. Jesus is willingly hanging on the cross. Jesus is accomplishing the work that he has agreed to do before the foundations of the world. They do not realize that there is a much greater plan in motion here. Christ is submitting himself to the will of the Father. And that mission is to redeem the people of God from their sin. And so if Christ were to come off the cross and save himself, it would mean that he would abandon his mission. Saving himself, we would be damned. There would be no hope for humanity. This is why Jesus prayed for them, saying, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they are mocking Jesus, they have no idea what they're talking about. They have no idea that God, what God is up to, that this is the single greatest event in all of the universe. It's happening right here. They don't realize that. They think that Christ is at their mercy. And so back to the question, could Jesus save himself? And the answer is absolutely he could have. He is the Lord of glory, all power, all dominion belongs to him, and he can come off the cross instantly. He could show them his true glory and power. Just earlier he said that he can summon legions of angels, and at his word, the the world would dissolve. Psalm 46, verse 6, we read, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. All Christ has to do is speak a word and all the armies of Rome would fall. Jesus could, of course, come off the cross, but he didn't because he was committed to the mission. He was bound by his word. He was bound by the promise to both the Father and the promise that God has made to humanity that one day a Savior will come to save them from their sin. That is what Christ is doing. And the divine power to come off the cross was available to him at any moment. There is a heresy out there that says when Jesus became man, From his birth to his resurrection, he did not and he could not tap into his divine nature. That's what they teach. As soon as Christ became man, he has put aside his divinity and he could not touch it. He existed on earth with one nature, the human nature. 
those who believe in this heresy would say, they would affirm that Jesus is 100% man, that Jesus is also 100% fully God, but with a big but. And that is when he came to earth, he set his divinity completely aside. He could not access it. This heresy um, is often being preached by men like Bill Johnson. Bethel Church speaks about this. They promote this all the time. They're big proponents of this heresy. And here's the reason. Here's the reason they teach that Christ completely set aside his divine nature. If Jesus performs, if he performed all of his miracles, if he did, if, if everything that Jesus did, he did in his human nature, then we as Christians who do not have a divine nature can also do what Christ has done. That's what they're trying to get at. That's the logic. It sounds like a lot of fun, but it's just not true. They're trying to persuade people they can do the same things that Jesus did. They teach Christians that they have no excuses today to go around and resurrect anybody they want to from the dead, to heal whoever they want to. Jesus did it. He did it in his human nature, and so can we. That's what they teach. It is dangerous because it's an attempt to elevate man to the level of Christ. It makes us equal with Christ. It is a dangerous heresy because it distorts and it twists the real Christ. And it is also dangerous because it sets many people up for failure. A lot of expectations are being set that many, many come to find out they cannot do. And when they cannot heal, when they cannot raise people from the dead, their leaders will tell them, you do not have enough faith. It's a dangerous heresy. It's one of the reasons we don't sing, if you've wondered. It's one of the reasons we don't sing Bethel songs as a church. Some of the songs are great. Every once in a while, they really hit the, ham, uh, the nail on the head. But we don't want to mislead people to the wrong Jesus by indirectly endorsing And of course, Jesus is divine, even while he was on earth. He is man, and he is God. This is important because from the beginning of his ministry, the first, the first time Jesus entered into a synagogue and he took the scroll of Isaiah, he made it clear. We read this in Luke 4.18. Jesus made it clear that he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah. And this was a claim to divinity. Jesus was claiming that he is divine. This is why they were so angered, and they took him, and they brought him to the edge of a cliff, and they were about to drop him off, because Christ claimed to be divine. And the proof that Jesus offers to them that he is, in fact, the Messiah are the miraculous 
signs and wonders that he will perform that belong only to a divine God and to whomever he chooses to give those powers to. With the signs, he was proving to them that he was divine. And this is precisely what's at the center of this mockery against Jesus. They're questioning him. Aren't you the Christ? You told us, you taught us that you are the Messiah. Aren't you supposed to be divine? Aren't you supposed to have the power to come off the cross? You told us you were Adonai. You told us you were Lord. You were curious. It's a Greek term for Lord. Don't you have the power to take yourself off the cross? You healed others. If you can't heal yourself, you are a fraud. You are not the Messiah. You are not divine. This heresy follows the logic of these Pharisees, saying that because Jesus set aside his divine nature, he could not remove himself off the cross. In fact, Jesus could. He could in a moment. Yet as we already saw, Jesus remained on the cross not because he did not have the power to come off, but because he was on a mission to atone for the sin of humanity. A couple other details were given in our text. We see as the soldiers mocked Jesus, they were also dividing up his clothes and they offered Jesus sour wine or vinegar to drink. Clothing was expensive. The man was going to die anyways, and so the soldiers were rationing it up. A little tip for their work. And in verse 36, we read, the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine. This verse puzzled me as a kid. I'm like, what is going on here? Why are they giving Jesus sour wine? Why is there sour wine here? Why are they giving it to Jesus? In the Gospel of Mark, we read that they offered this drink to Jesus twice. The first time was right before the crucifixion. We read that in Mark 15, 23. They gave him wine mixed with myrrh. And it was meant to dull the senses of the one who was getting nailed to the cross before he was lifted up. Okay, it would be crazy pain. And so to keep them more comfortable, they would give him wine and myrrh. Jesus, of course, rejects it. He would not... He, would, he committed himself to endure the pain fully. He committed himself to endure the pain completely. The second time Mark mentions sour wine given to Jesus is right before Jesus says, it is finished, he, and he breathes his last. This is Mark 15, 36. That's the second time Jesus is, it's a different type. It's not like the first one. This would be vinegar. Many believe Mark's second mention of this sour wine is actually the third time Jesus was given a drink. And what we see here in Luke 23, 36 is the second 
time Jesus is offered to drink. Sour wine or vinegar, think like apple cider vinegar. They would use all sorts of fruit and vegetables to create vinegars. Um, This was widely used by the people of those times and cultures, both for consumption and sanitation. Soldiers would drink for hydration, a lot of electrolytes. They're in heavy gear. It's hot. There's a risk of, um, what's the term? Dehydration, heat stroke. And so they would drink. We, we, we see many records that they would drink um, vinegar to stay hydrated. But we have good reasons to believe that the soldier giving Jesus sour wine is not concerned for Jesus' hydration. It's not what's going on here. He doesn't care if Jesus is hydrated or not. In verse 36, we see that the context is mockery. They're laughing at Jesus. They are mocking Jesus while they are giving him sour wine. They're mocking him and telling him, you are the king of the Jews. Save yourself. Luke is clear that the soldier's motivation to give Jesus this vinegar is not to help him, but to mock him. The other Gospels tell us how this vinegar was given. They would dip a sponge into this vinegar, they would put it on a stick, and hold it up to Jesus to drink. So the question is, how is this mockery? Two possible ways. The first is the context of verse 36. They are calling Jesus the king of the Jews. Kings, of course, deserve, they get the best wine they could find. Yet here the soldier is mocking Jesus because he calls Jesus king, and yet he gives him the worst wine. The stuff that soldiers drank because it was cheap. The second possibility is this, and this is really gross. I'm sorry, but part of the Roman soldier field sanitation pack included a sponge. They would use it after excretion. They would pour their sour wine on the sponge to sanitize it afterwards. The public bathrooms of Rome at that time obviously did not have toilet paper, but they did have a pot of diluted vinegar, and in that pot was a stick with a sponge attached to it that they would use to clean themselves. We know the sponge was part of every soldier's pack, and very likely it was used to give Jesus the vinegar as they were mocking and humiliating Christ. It's a horrid horrid scene. And we read in verse 38, there was an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. It was common at that time. As the criminal was crucified, there would be a a sign above his head that would let everybody know what was the reason for the crucifixion for all to see Pilate commanded that Jesus' inscription be read, be written as, This is the king of the Jews. 
And in fact, he commanded that it would be written in three languages, Latin, Aramaic, and Greek, making sure that all who pass by would read it as that was the most common, the most common languages. Most, everybody spoke one of the three. Of course, if you remember, Jesus was arrested and condemned by the Jews for blasphemy. For Jesus' claim that he is the Messiah and the Son of God, which would make Jesus the King of the Jews. This was blasphemy to them. This is why they wanted to kill him. And so Pilate writes that. He writes that inscription, and he writes it as a matter of fact. He writes, this is the king of the Jews. And so people from all over, the, all over Rome are coming to Jerusalem. This is Passover, and they're reading this. This is the king of the Jews, matter of fact. And of course, the chief priests had a problem with this inscription. John 19, 21, we read, So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write king of the Jews, but rather This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. There's a lot of irony in this verse. Of course, the statement is true. Christ is the king of the Jews, but not only the Jews, he is Lord over all, and Pilate wouldn't budge. He tells them, what I wrote is what I wrote. And in the midst of this mockery coming at Jesus, from the soldiers, from the religious leaders, from the thief on the cross, in the midst of all of this mockery, there is one who sees Jesus for who he really is. This man, of course, is the other thief. After the other thief mocked Jesus, we read, but the other rebuked him, verse 40, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As others question and mock Jesus for calling himself the Messiah, the Savior, this man, on the other hand, looks at Jesus And he sees him as his only hope. He believes that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Savior. And we see the criminal confesses his sin. He realizes that he is guilty. That he deserves this punishment. That he deserves to be put to death. He tells the other guy, we deserve this. We're getting punished Justly, for we, receive, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man, on the other hand, pointing to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. And he turns to Jesus and he asks 
for mercy. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is absolutely amazing. This man believes Jesus against all odds. Think about this from a human perspective, okay? Let's say you do not know uh, from Acts and on, from, from, from this point and on, you do not know. You do not know that Jesus is going to resurrect. You don't, you don't know anything. You don't, you don't know that. From a human perspective, looking at Jesus hanging on the cross, all you see is utter weakness. A helpless man who had a dream, who had a ministry, who absolutely failed. Where is the hope in this scene? Where does this criminal see a savior? It's a bloody man who can't help himself even when he is challenged. Again, now, today, we understand if someone is compelled to believe post-resurrection, post-empty tomb. The message goes out that Christ is victorious. He has defeated death. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come. And as we call people to believe, like we, I, I, I would be compelled to believe in this kind of a Jesus. And even when we believe in this Jesus, it is a work of God. It's an amazing miracle of God. But the faith of this man is unmatched. This is the worst time to preach the gospel. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, this is the worst time to preach the gospel. Believe in Jesus? Who is he? Oh, he's that man hanging on the cross. Yet this criminal seeing Jesus in his most weakest state. There is no glory here. There is only shame. And he believes. As the crowd below questions Jesus' divine nature, Jesus does the most divine miracle. A miracle that is greater than the resurrection of Lazarus. A miracle that is greater than making the blind see and the lame walk. Jesus saves this man. Something only God can do. He opens his spiritual eyes to see who Jesus is and this man puts all his hope and all his trust in a man who is also hanging on the cross next to him. This is true faith. Only God can give this kind of faith. And Jesus tells him, verse 43, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The crucified Jesus, even on the cross, continues to be <clears throat> the Lord. He continues to be powerful enough to save this wretched man, changing his eternal destiny as he hangs. Church, this criminal is the clearest example we have that it is not on our own doing. It is not our own doing that saves us. It's not even our own doing as those who preach the gospel that saves It's not our own doing as those who believe, who are saved. It is the powerful 
transforming work of God who saves, and he can save even against all odds when Christ is the most unattractive. He is the one who gives us faith. He's the one who gives us repentance. And he's the one who gives us the ability to see Jesus for who he is. Everybody saw a weak man who was unable to save himself. This thief saw his Savior. This thief saw his God. This thief saw the kingdom of God. He believed. And Jesus told him, Today, just a few moments, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you have done through your son. We thank you that in Christ we have redemption, we have forgiveness of our sin. Father, we thank you that you loved us while we were still enemies. Father, we thank you for not sparing your son, but giving him for us so that we might belong to you and be adopted into your family, Lord. We just thank you for that. And Lord, as we continue to look at your word, at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I pray that you would compel us, Father, to see Jesus glorious and lifted high, that you would compel us and enable us to worship him for all that he has accomplished and for who he is. And Father, we pray that you would continue to save. Lord, we thank you that salvation does not hinge on our ability uh, to, to say beautiful words, Lord, but it hangs only on the fact that Christ has done the work. And the good news is that in him and all who put their trust in him are forgiven and accepted into the kingdom of God. The rest is your work. Spirit, we thank you for that. So Father, we pray that you would do this work among us, that you would continue to draw many to yourself, and that you would enable us to worship and to lift high Christ who has saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.